Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Today on the Perception Podcast, we have an awesome treat for all of our listeners. Our special guest is Matt Farah from The Smoking Tire, which holds the ranking of the best automotive podcast on the planet that he co-hosts with his longtime confidant, Zach Klatman. Matt is also well known on YouTube for his reviews and thrill rides of hundreds of cars through the canyons on the West Coast, tracks across the globe, and other exciting venues. He's driven everything from electric vehicles to the mighty gas guzzlers. He also founded Westside Collector Car Storage and has a beautiful personal collection of vehicles including his childhood favorite, the 1988 Countach 5000QV. So let's get ready to hear some straight talk about a variety of automotive topics with Matt Farah. Welcome to the Perception Podcast. Today we want to welcome Matt Farah from The Smoking Tire. Hey Matt, how are you? Great, thank you for having me. Appreciate taking the time. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so just a first question, just give us a little background. Um, you know, when'd you grow up? Would you go to school? Uh, I grew up in Westchester County, New York. Uh, although I was born in, uh, born in New Jersey, did a little bit of time in Atlanta, uh, when I was very young and, and, but spent most of my formative years at Rye Country Day School in Rye, New York, uh, in suburb of New York city. And then I, uh, went to the university of Pennsylvania, uh, in Philly for undergrad and, uh, I studied uh, fine arts, graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts with a concentration in photography. And uh, I then uh, moved back to the suburbs to try to be a photographer, which was a pretty failed uh, venture because two things happened at, uh, at the same time I graduated. And that was uh, the first commercially available digital SLR camera and Craigslist. And those two things literally <laughs> killed the professional photography industry. And it took, it took about a decade for that to recover. And so um, decided that I wanted to follow my passion, uh, which was always cars. Um, and so I, uh, I found ways to, to work my way into that industry. Is there any specific person that got you into the automotive world? Well, I mean, my father bought me my first car magazine when I was a kid, you know, actually, um, uh, it's not in the best condition, but I actually have it. This is the, this wow. is my first ever car magazine. Wow. The DeLorean on the cover. Uh, the DeLorean on the cover. <laughs> and, awesome. uh, and so, uh, that's it. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, that the DeLorean specifically, um, uh, with the gullwing doors and all that kind of stuff, um, and as well as, you know, reading about exotic cars and stuff like that and, uh, making my parents, you know, take me to the, the local gray market car dealers, uh, when I was a kid, you know, to look around that kind of stuff. Um, it, that's really solidified my, my passion in cars. And then when I started driving go-karts and golf carts and, you know, um, and figuring out, um, the mechanics of driving, uh, and going fast, you know, that, that stuff was really, uh, really very influential, but it wasn't like, uh, you know, my, my parents weren't, weren't into cars and, and wrenching on cars or anything like that. So I got most of my, um, passions from magazines and, uh, and, and things like that until, you know, until we got to top gear, 
you know, uh, the, the British car show uh, when I was uh, in my early 20s. Um, but, you know, I never uh, reading those magazines growing up and um, uh, it never really seemed like a career that like regular people could just do. You know, it's like it might, you might as well said, you know, this was written by Superman or something. You know, it's not that it wasn't it wasn't like a, a thing that was like, I'm going to figure out how to do that. Um, it was more like when the when the photography thing didn't work out, it was, well, I know I want to do something with cars, um, you know, but let me let me see what what that something could be. You know, so I worked at dealerships. I worked at an exotic car rental company. Uh, I started a car wash and detailing shop with my friend Larry Casilla, who's now one of like the best detailers in the world. Um, and uh, and I just I didn't know where I wanted to end up. I just knew that I wanted to be, you know, in the game. It wasn't really until uh, we had this car wash and um, and and we started this driving club because we we figured that if we could get people to drive their cars more and give them things to do with their car, they would come to the shop and get details and washes and stuff like that, which did work um, actually. And then, um, and then YouTube was launched. And when YouTube launched in 2006, it was, Oh, well, we could make videos of these events we're doing in these drives and we could share those videos and that would help build our, our brand for the car wash. And um, I very quickly found out that, making videos was a lot more fun to me than than being in a cold wet car wash in, in new york so yeah so the car wash didn't last long once i discovered youtube i uh i love the way you describe the sort of uh transition from magazines and soaking up all that information like it's almost like going through baseball cards and memorizing yeah. all the stats and whatnot yeah. And then Top Gear sort of resurfacing and the way that that, I think for many people, reignited their passion as all of a sudden you're now seeing the stuff that you previously saw on the printed page. And now you're watching, you know, Tiff Nadell and Jeremy Clarkson, like drift cars around corners and, and all of that in the way that. Well, yeah, that, the, the, you have the you had action combined with humor. Um, you had um, not just the supercars, but these sort of crap car challenges also. Um, it was very big budget. And so they could really do anything. And, um, you know, because it was the BBC, uh, they didn't have to rely on advertising. They were able to get away with a lot more than you could get away with on American TV. Um, and because it was an hour without commercials, it really seemed like a very rich bit of entertainment. Plus you had these, these English guys who would use words and phrases that were unfamiliar to me and seemed, you know, although they were obviously speaking English, but, but it was some more, you know, the English, well, just, no, I mean, just weird. Well, there's pronunciations of words, but also, you know, phrases that are unique to the UK that you might not have heard so much as an American and, 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 um, and so uh, it, it, it was very influential because it was right at the same time I started to make videos myself. And so I wasn't just watching the, that stuff as a fan. I was watching it as someone who would, wanted to emulate it and figure out, you know, what I had to do to try to, to emulate it in, in my own way. You know, the same way I would, 
um, when I picked up a guitar, I learned, I taught myself to play guitar in my late teens and my favorite band was Pearl Jam. And when I would try to write songs, you know, the, the chords and the strumming patterns that I would use when I would try to write songs would be, you know, vaguely familiar of what you might hear in a, in a Pearl Jam song, just because that's where your influences lead you, you know? So besides, um, you know, automotive, what, what other hobbies you said you, 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 you know, you went to school for fine arts. What, what else yeah. do you do to, uh, kind of uh, keep the brain well, going? <laughs> now, I mean, now I, now I work, I work, I work a lot. Um, <laughs> and so, um, I wish I could say I had a lot of extracurricular hobbies these days, but I think, I think I'm, I'm very much a workaholic. Um, you know, I, I collect cars and I collect watches and, uh, I have, I have four cats, um, that I love to spend time with, uh, you know, I ski and I play golf and I just do, uh, I'm a, I'm a skipper. So I like to go sailing. I grew up, uh, I grew up in, in Westchester. So, you know, the whitest kid, you know, I, I have, a, I have many certifications in sailing. I used to race sailboats, you know, you pick your obscenely expensive sport. I've probably done it. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, my wife and I like to travel a lot. And so she, she works, um, at, uh, at Twitter, she's an executive at Twitter. And so we're both, we're both very busy with, uh, with our careers, but we, we try to make time for our, for ourselves when we can. I think she but, probably uh, wishes I had more, more at home hobbies instead right. of just work. Yeah. Can I ask what your handicap is in golf? Um, I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't file my scores in the system, but I think I probably, I, I, if I'm having a good day, I'll shoot in the, in the high eighties. And if I'm having a bad day, I'll shoot in the middle nineties. And I think I probably could be quite a bit better if I spent the time to line up my putts. <laughs> I miss, I miss a lot of six foot putts that probably that I could probably, if I was a little more patient, uh, my father is a, is a very, very good golfer. He was at, a, at, at his peak, he was like a two handicap. And, and uh, so I, I grew up playing with him a lot and he was very athletic um, was, I mean, he's, you know, he's approaching 70. So his, his, he's not quite as good anymore, but when he was in his early fifties, he was, um, he was in the, the, the very low single digits. And so it was, uh, you know, like all the other things with my father in my life, it was very humbling to be around him, but also, uh, uh rewarding to be, have someone so talented, be a, be a teacher. My dad was a, is a, a very, was a very powerful fashion retail executive. He was the president of Ralph Lauren for 15 years. He was the president of Foot Locker for seven years. He um, was the chairman of the board of Tiffany. He was the chairman of the board of um, um, Tory Burch. He, uh, he was the CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue at 36 years old in the eighties. I mean, he's really, he's, he's run some very, very big and successful companies. So big shadow to step out from under. Right. When he was at Foot Locker, did you get all the like greatest gear on the planet? Were you the one walking around with the, the you know, the newest Nikes? Uh, I, I <laughs> was, I was, but I also worked at a Foot Locker. Um, oh, you know, good. although I had a, a, a successful father, my obsession when I was a teenager was about uh, getting my first car. You know, I was from, I started talking about my first car when I was like 12. And so, um, you know, my dad, you know, I think wisely said, you know, you, you want a car, you better, uh, you better get a job. 
And, uh, yep. you know, no one, no one hires a kid of that age, except their own father, really. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah, starting at, at 14 years old, I started, I, I always looked older. So it wasn't like super weird that there was this kid working retail. Um, but uh, yeah, every weekend I sold shoes at Foot Locker. And, uh, and it was weird because I was the son of the CEO, but I also had like the highest sales in my region for, for a pretty serious period of time. I was a hard worker, sold a lot of shoes and, and I got that corporate discount and I had lot, I had lots of sneakers. Yeah. <laughs> you got to throw them up on StockX and stuff. Now they're probably worth a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, if I, uh, you know, I'm now it's, I have a weird relationship with shoes. You're not going to believe this. I buy nice shoes and then I wear them. I know that's very difficult to believe, <laughs> but I, I will buy the latest Jordans and then I'll actually right. wear them to the gym. I know that's like unbelievable and How uh, dare you? borderline <laughs> sacrilege, but they, it turns out they're actually nice shoes if you wear them as shoes. And so I, I do that. <laughs> yeah. I collect enough shit. I can't collect shoes. It's just, that's, that's too much collect. I don't like collecting things where using them in a, in a in a regular way makes them like disintegrate that's probably not a good good use of, of value you know I, I collect watches and cars and you can use those things a pretty good amount and with without eating away at their value you know yep uh, so tell us a little bit about the smoking tire how, how it started all that uh, backstory well when i was at the car wash i started making youtube videos for that and then you know, something happened then that would probably never happen again, which was that um, uh, someone was starting uh, a very early version of what would now be called a multi-channel network. Um, and, and unlike today, where a multi-channel network is a virtual thing that exists sort of out in, in space, um, this one was run out of an office in New York City. And he offered me a salaried job in 2007 to come make videos for them full time. He saw my car wash videos and thought I was a, a good personality and, and whatever. And so they offered me a job talking about cars. And so that, that was called uh, garage 419, which was a terrible name for a show, but 419 park Avenue was the, the address of the studio we were at. Um, and, uh, and so I did that for about a year. And then when the economy uh, tanked, um, that company was sold to Google very cheap. And I, I was out of a job and my cameraman, Tom and I uh, decided that we really enjoyed doing what we were doing. And we had learned what the process was of, of running a show uh, while we were at that company. And we decided to, to continue on our own. Uh, we didn't really need anybody else. I, I had, sold my half of the car wash. So I had some money and uh, we moved to California uh, to start the smoking tire. And, and we, we moved from New York to California because we realized um, accurately that uh, the opportunities uh, were much greater in California, the year round season, the roads, the sports cars, the culture. Uh, and we also thought at that time that um, the YouTube channel would be sort of a rolling audition for television and that, that the real goal was getting on television, getting a cable show. Um, and, and, and we only learned later that cable sucks. <laughs> you don't actually want to be on cable 
and having a successful internet show is far, far more important today than having a, a cable TV show. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, we, we just started making videos. We came up with a schedule. It, it took me five or six months to come up with the name, the smoking tire. I think a name is very important. And, um, and we just, we just got to work, you know, and, and in the beginning we had other side gigs that we would do to support, uh, the YouTube channel and support ourselves. We didn't make any money for about a year and a half. And then, started making little bits of money here and there and uh you know eventually uh figured out a system that uh that that worked you know it wasn't until we started really treating it like a business um that and really valuing our time in a certain way that it started to become what you might call successful um of course around that time my cameraman tom got tired of it and moved back to new york to do more traditional paid cinematography type gigs. And I continued it first on my own. And then with, um, with someone who started as an assistant and then became a cameraman and then a producer and is now my podcast partner and co-host Zach Clapman, who's been with me since 2009. Um, pretty indispensable cat, that guy. And so, uh, you know, we always just, we just, we just learned by doing um, and always just kept going, you know, it was just, you know, make another video, make another video, make another video in 2010, my friend, uh, Chris Hayes, um, uh, said that we should start a podcast. And I said, well, that's dumb. Everyone's already got a podcast. And that was in 2010. Um, so, so I was, I was off by a little bit. And so, um, it turns out only like two people had podcasts in 2010 and I knew both of them. Um, and so, uh, so we started doing the smoke entire podcast and, um, and, uh, and now, now that that show is number one in the automotive space globally, uh, number one in the U S and number one globally, um, and, uh, and, and the podcast now brings in um, more revenue than the video show does today. So it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing, you know, but. Matt, can I ask, uh, why is it that there is so much amazing automotive content on the internet and the stuff that's on TV is still to this day, like you turn on TV on a Saturday morning and it's just like, people rebuilding an ancient hot rod and, and that sort of stuff that I don't, because I don't of know. who watches the internet versus who watches TV, old people watch TV. Yeah. It's, it's like nursing home yeah. uh, network yeah. sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and it's way easier to script those types of shows. I mean, every one of those build <clears throat> shows is fake. I assume you know that, yeah. right. They're yeah. all fake. And, and, and um, the kind of folks who are on those shows and the kind of folks who produce those shows are not creative. They're not original. They've seen that formula work uh, over and over and they repeat it. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a certain mindlessness that comes from showing this piece of junk car and then showing the shiny car at the end or, you know, what's in the storage unit and what's it worth or can I buy this thing and flip it and make a deal, you know? Um, and look, I, I'm not 
saying I've never watched that stuff. I've watched Pawn Stars and Storage Wars and all that kind of stuff before. And I don't like the build shows. I think they're they're pretty terrible. But like I've watched that kind of mindless, brainless content before in order to pass the time on a flight or, you know, whatever. Um, and the kind of folks who want to be on those shows, um, they want to be famous more than they want to be rich. I don't. I want to be rich more than I want to be famous. And so um, you're not going to get me to go on TV for some lowball number uh, where they own your life and they own your rights and they own everything about you for five grand an episode. No, thanks. I'll take a pass on that. Um, and I think that the, the type of people that have a more creative entrepreneurial spirit uh the ones that are capable of creatively coming up with content on their own finding budget on their own uh are making it on the internet and the kind of folks who are creative on the corporate side are partnering with people on the internet you know it's the same reason you see um with me ebay motors with with you know my friend freddie and and ed bolian and uh tyler hoover it's auto tempest and you know, you see these more creative partnerships that are allowing uh, the creators to, to more freely play with the brand in a more humorous way. It's just uh, that kind of stuff is important uh, in an on-demand medium, you know. Um, uh, and I think that th there's a downside to that as well. It's an on-demand medium, right? So for me, um, when it comes to videos, the metal drives it, right? So I've got a million subscribers, but if I make a video about a car that those people don't find interesting, they're not going to click on it. Whereas if you're flipping through the, the guide on your cable box and you see an episode of Pawn Stars or Fast and Loud, you're not going to go, oh, this is the one where the guy tries to sell them the copy of the Declaration of Independence. No, it's just, you know, it's, uh, or for me, you know, if I see Seinfeld on the guide or if there was even more importantly, if there was a new episode of Seinfeld every Thursday growing up, right, I didn't, I would watch it because it was the new Seinfeld. I didn't, I wasn't like, you know, oh, this is the one with the ice cream, like, nah, you know, and so in, in the, in, in an on-demand world, um, the metal, the metal drives the the clicks. So, I can make a video that does 200 or 300,000 views and I can make a video that does 50,000 views. And that depends on whether the masses of the audience determine that the, what I've chosen to focus my cameras on is interesting, you know, and we learn that by doing, um, and it's the same thing with the podcast, with the podcast, you know, the numbers say that our most successful episodes are ones where I have a celebrity on, who then shares the show with their audience because now you've got a recognizable name that people want to hear from and also they bring their audience in next to that the next most successful episodes are the ones with just me and zach and no guest because the audience wants to know what they're getting before they click and it's predictable oh it's matt and zach talking about cars i like that i like hearing that if it's a guest they haven't heard of before, even if the person is brilliant or has done something cool or is an absolute great broadcaster, they don't want to invest in that new thing. And so they don't click. And so actually having uh, no guest is a better option a lot of time than having a guest that you might like, 
you might want to spend your time with talking to, but that the audience doesn't want to invest their time in learning about a new person. And that's kind of a sucky thing about on-demand content. And I know that's not what your question was, but it's just the reality of, of producing on-demand content in 2021, you know? Yeah. So it's, it sounds like you're at a point now where you kind of figured out what makes a video or an episode successful on your podcast. Um, in some ways. Like, yeah. I mean, with the podcast, but, I think so. Yeah. yeah but, certainly but my in question a, in a predictable was going to be, way, yeah. initially, how did you guys achieve your earliest success? before you knew all the episodes uh, and the content that was going to work more than others. <laughs> there was no early success. We just kept doing it. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we did a show every, we did, we now do two shows a week podcast, but we did one show a week for two years. So a, 110 shows or whatever it was before we sold a single ad before we made a dollar. So we committed hours and days and weeks of time to, to doing this before having a single penny to show for it. Um, most people wouldn't do that. And that's why when people ask me, how do you start a channel? How do you start a podcast? I, I go, well, here's how I did it. I did a hundred episodes for free. Most people go, Ugh. or they record four or five episodes and then go, Oh shit, this is actual work. And now they're not really into that. You know, um same thing with writing you know i i did you, offer did you guys determine that at the beginning like we're gonna just go for a year or two yes. years or yes. how many how many years are we gonna try this before well we in the beginning the podcast was a marketing exercise for the videos mm-hmm. we thought we thought it was a supplement to the videos of behind the scenes we were like yeah we're sitting around at the at the time uh when we started i had a, i had four people in my crew it was me and Tom and then two cameramen and, and, and an assistant. And we made, we all had side jobs, all of us, but we all lived in this one big house. It was like a big five bedroom house. And so we would sit around drinking wine and smoking weed and talking about cars anyway. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, let's, we might as well record this. <laughs> and it would, we thought it would just be marketing for the videos. Um, and, and we never, it's not that we never expected to make any money, but we thought, you know, at least if we're, we're doing this anyway, we might as well record it. Um, and, and maybe someone will like it and, and, and whatever, you know, um, we didn't have very high hopes for it for sure. Um, but it's a great fit. ultimately I mean, it worked out. Sorry. what? You know, the, the world of cars, there is a whole lot of, you know, just hanging out with your, with your buddies and arguing over what's coolest. And I think the podcast format, you know, for many people who are habitual podcast listeners, it becomes this sort of like, almost like one way relationship that you have with those oh, people. Oh, for sure. Feels like it's, oh yeah. Yeah, I meet, I meet people in person who know way more about me than I know about them. And I have a lot of one-sided conversations and it's weird, but you know, I, I'm glad that these people appreciate what we're doing, you know? So being in the automotive space and being you, is there an inherent danger that comes with the fact that anybody who is, you know, into your your videos and into your podcasts and into cars wants to 
pull up alongside you on the highway and show off or, you know, try and, uh, and, and display, do their sort of version of like, Hey, watch this while you are. Yeah, that happens. Well, that happens a lot. That happens a bunch. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it necessarily puts me in danger because I don't like engage in a street race, but like sure, there's sure. definitely people who see me driving, you know, whatever and, and, you know, wave or shoot video on their phones or try to do something stupid or egg me on. And, you know, a uh, 24 year old me might have engaged in that kind of stuff. Now I just wave and go about my business, you know. Um, I mean, I'm pretty easy to find. It's not like I, I'm concerned about like, you know, weird stalkers or anything like that. Like, you know, my business, West Side Collector Car Storage, like it's on Google Maps, like you could find it, like my studio's there. You know, the door's locked. You can't just walk in, you know, but it but it's there and and fans, you know, will send me stuff once in a while or to that address. And and I, I like having a publicly available address that isn't my home. You know, I mean, for a long time, I was working from home and people would say, oh, I want to send you something. Where can I send it? You know, and I didn't I didn't have anywhere to, to, to send things besides my house. And so uh, having a, 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 a business that's open seven days a week that's staffed, you know, if fans want to come take a tour or or send something, you know, it's very nice to have that kind of stuff. And and I'm not I mean. I can't possibly imagine someone is going to want to hurt me because of my opinions on cars. I mean, you, I, I just, I, I find it very hard to believe that that, that person is out there, but yeah, we've had our share. Just as like, you're a walking uh, cars and coffee exit. Well, you know? yeah, no, I mean, one thing I don't really do is I don't go on group drives anymore. You know, I used to do like road rallies and people invite me on their car club drives and stuff a lot. And, and I don't do that because because of that, because people will try to show off around me and, and it can create a dangerous situation or it can draw, you know, uh, you know, the cops. And, and I have you know, I have to keep a clean driving record. I mean, obviously, if you've seen my videos, I I I, I, I drive at pace in my videos, you know, but I do it very early in the morning, very far in the middle of nowhere in a place where there aren't homes, you know, or, or businesses around. I, I, and because of that, when I do interact with the police and they know who I am, some of these guys are car enthusiasts. Some of them just know because I'm sort of an LA car personality, you know, the cops aren't dicks to me. They understand that where I drive and when I drive is as far away from others as can be reasonably expected uh i don't cross double yellow lines i look out for cyclists i talk about road safety and stuff like that so um you know i i, I try to be a, a good example you know within reason um you know while still making a fun video um sure, sure. but yeah but i to answer your question i don't i don't drive with others for that yeah. reason yeah like that makes a lot of sense um, yeah I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, some of your thoughts on the, the current state of the automotive scene. And there's a lot of, you know, interesting and exciting or unexciting changes that are happening with vehicles um, as, as things are becoming, you know, more advanced and, and shifting and changing more than they have in, in a long time. 
as a enthusiast, I think the typical answer is always like, yeah, no, I like the way they used to make cars 10 or 15 years ago and whatnot. Uh, and I, and I think there's a lot of that, that is certainly true, but are there any certain applications of like technology in a modern vehicle that you've been particularly excited about or enthusiastic about? Well, sure. I mean, look, I, I own an electric car. I, I have a Ford Mach-E that I use to, to drive around the city and my, and, uh, uh, you know, I have a bunch of old stupid cars too, but my wife and I <laughs> share this one modern car. Um, and it's delightful. I mean, it's delightful. I mean, I, I, you know, if, if every appliance car were electric, we would live in a very pleasant city. You know, there'd be fewer emissions, there'd be fewer, less noise, you know, um, I, 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 although I, I, I'm not science-minded enough to do 100% of the math from lithium mine to disposal, you know, um, uh, the idea of appliance cars being electric is very appealing to me. The, the good ones that I've driven are fabulous. I mean, the Porsche Taycan is an incredible performance vehicle um, that is very, very fun to drive, uh, no matter which trim uh, you have. Um and and so I think the application of that technology is 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 not exclusive to commuter cars, and and they have some very interesting things that they're doing. Um, I, on the other hand, I think uh, we are past um, what I would call peak enthusiast car. I think we I think we hit peak enthusiast car around 2010, which is where the balance of engagement, uh, performance, and reliability really kind of pinnacled together and you know if you look at um ferrari let's say as an example um you know that's when they sold their last manual transmission that's about when lamborghini sold their last manual transmission um and and you know ferrari is another example the the 458 which came out in 2010 is incredibly similar to what they're selling now the f8 the chassis is the same the interior is the same. The bodywork is largely the same, um, and the, the difference in power uh, and performance to go from the 500 horsepower uh, 458 to the 700 horsepower F8, the, the 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 difference in that level of performance is largely not usable on the street. You're, you you know the average driver is not going to go uh, substantially faster up a canyon. Uh, in an F8 than they are in a uh, 458, um, and uh, and and so I think we're we're past the the peak of engagement there, uh, and all that's left is is to up and up the performance level. I mean, Ferrari will now sell you a thousand horsepower hybrid car called the SF90 that I drove one, and it was pretty forgettable. I mean, it was not particularly interesting it was heavy uh the inside was really just like the 458 from 10 years ago it was not that much different and um you know it, it has all this power um but the tires the the brakes the the suspension is is still largely the same so you still have to slow down the same for the corners and and whatever and you've got this sort of dragster um that isn't really 
it wouldn't even make my top 10 most fun Ferraris I've ever driven. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not saying we all need to, to go back to driving stick um, because I know there's a lot of people that don't want to drive stick and a lot of people, um, you know, whose reasons for driving stick back then versus now was that there were more gears or you could shift up and down with more precision. And now with the modern dual clutch gearbox, you can do that kind of stuff. Um, so, so I understand that. Um, but you know, the, the same technology that allows performance to go further and further and further often disconnects you from the experience, uh, more and more and more. And so we've got, um, some incredible performance machines. I mean, it's never been a better time to go faster. I mean, you've got any number of production level, you know, mid-engine supercars to choose from. Um, you've got any number of extremely fast sedans. You know, you can go lease a 700 horsepower Hellcat for a thousand bucks a month. Yep. You know, um, you know, horsepower has never been cheaper. Performance has never been cheaper. Um, you know, but at the same time, um, there are fewer and fewer um, affordable uh, performance cars. There's fewer and fewer uh, lightweight entry-level coupes and sports cars. Um, and so, you know, I think that... Um, what, what do you yeah. see out there on the horizon that looks like it could be memorable? Who do you think is make, still making products that are putting that emphasis on it being a memorable experience as opposed to just getting the, the, the well, best Porsche figure. is obviously the leader in this right now. Um, you know, they're GT cars, which you can still get a naturally aspirated engine that revs really high. You can still get them with a great shifter and a stick shift. Um, you know, you can still, um, they're, they're relatively light for their class. Um, and they're, they're very, very fun to drive regardless of the speed you're going. I mean, they're, they're leading, I mean, Honda, um, is doing a really nice job with the, the civic type R, the new civic SI that just came out. I, I just drove, um, you know, they really have figured out inputs, shifter pedals, steering seats. They're doing an excellent job with that kind of stuff. Um, um, I, I think they're probably doing the best Honda and Porsche are in terms of building driver's car that the, the new 86 and BRZ. Uh, is, I, is I just placed car. an order on one. Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, yeah. That's a, I mean that for, for under 30 K that's a lot of car. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I was, I tested that on both the road and the track and, and you can carry unbelievable pace in that car. Uh, for for under thirty thousand dollars, and it's it's a very well balanced driver's car. Um, but but beyond that, there's not a ton. It's it's all getting heavier, more digital, more tech, um, and uh, and so there's there's not a lot of brand new cars that are really um, appealing to me personally. Um, although you know that doesn't mean I won't have positive things to say about them when I review them because I try to step outside my own personal interests a little bit when when doing my job you know sure. I know um, I saw your review on the the, the GT version of the Maki, and you yeah. uh, you seem to enjoy it um, I did I did enjoy it although I uh, I'm I 
don't wish I waited and, and bought one myself. I think that my uh, rear wheel drive Mach-E premium uh, actually drives better in 90% of the circumstances than the GT does. You know, I talk about this a lot. Um, when you have gas powertrains and you've got a base engine, a middle engine, and a very powerful engine, oftentimes they'll have different numbers of cylinders, one may have turbos, one may have supercharger, you know, it may have different cams, you know, um, if we use the 911 as an example, we go back to the mid 2000s, you had a Carrera, you had a Carrera S, you had a GT3, and then you had a turbo, right? So the Carrera and the Carrera S had different cams and heads, different exhaust, so they would sound and feel and rev a little different. The GT3 was a completely different engine, race bred. It revved higher. It was louder. It was snappier, had a lighter flywheel. The turbo obviously had turbochargers, and it, and it featured a, a wide torque band and low shove. Each of those engines didn't only feel different because they made different amounts of horsepower. They had different vibrations. They sent different frequencies through the car. They sounded different. They revved different. Um, they, they had totally different attributes that you could feel whether you were going fast or whether you were going slow. You could feel them all the time. You always were aware of which engine you had compared to the other ones. With the electric cars, and this applies to all of them, not just the Mach-E, it's the same tune just played at a different volume right it's and so if you're not actually going full throttle there's no difference between the small engine one and the big engine one none yeah. right if you're if you're driving 70 down the highway there's no difference between the base model and the 1000 horsepower dragster they're both they they both have the same vibe right it's just how hard you press the pedal and that makes the thrust come more but there's no there's no difference to the driver so yeah. so that's why with an ev um it's great it's a great it's a nice selling point that you can buy a 10 second dragster production car that's cool and everything but if you're not actually using that you know i mean what are you fucking paying for exactly you know what yeah. i mean like what what's the point you know, my Mach-E is the, the middle one. It's like 350 horsepower and 420 torque. And I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've actually put the pedal on the floorboard. Um, you know, even half throttle is enough to make a nice scoot maneuver and get in that lane and whatever. So the extra power is uh, just where does it go? What's, the, what's it for? Who's it for? I don't, I don't know. Um, unless you want to drive like a complete asshole and you know, all right, fine. But, but um, you know, you start getting to the, the Tesla plans or runs, you know, high nines, or low tens. I mean, how often are I've done, I've done launches in those cars nauseating. It's, like not, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not pleasant. Um, you know, how, how often is someone going to do that? You know? And, and so is that really what you're paying for? I mean, and so, um, so I think that, that that's, that's kind of the unfortunate reality of, of electric pr propulsion. Yeah, it's, that, I mean, it's interesting the way you describe it, that there's there's all those subtle variations of the characteristics of the vehicle that are now all just being merged into one, into one. feeling. Yeah. 
And, yeah. and I think that's something that we, you know, we, when we're talking about future forecasting and whatnot, there's always this idea or this scenario that it's like, yeah, we're, everything's on a trajectory just to become these uh, unmistakably, you know, uh, singular pods driving around sure. and, and whatnot. And there's and, nothing wrong with an appliance, you know, you're doing appliance, appliance stuff. I'd rather, I'd rather have an electric vehicle than a, a tiny little three-cylinder engine that makes pathetic vibrations, you know. Um, but when it comes to a, an emotional product, like a very high-end luxury car or a performance car, you know, I, I, the, the fizz, it's what, what Jeremy Clarkson yeah. or James May might call it. The fizz has to be there. And, and when, um, when you've got these very fast EVs, all the fizz is the same. It's not, there's not a difference. Um, when you're in your Mach-E, do you, you, do you leave on the propulsion sounds or do you no. turn those off? No, I turn that crap off. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's dumb. Sorry. No offense, but I'm no, sure someone no, paid you to make it, but no, we, we, I don't need, I don't we, need my car to sound like I'm in the Jetsons. Sure. Um, uh, well, what about, what about, uh, the Taycan? Taycan, off, when you're standing off. out outside of it and you hear it puttering around a parking lot. And well, that's, that's like a, for a reason. That's for blind people. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's for big, blind people. I mean, I, feature, I understand but it's still, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of cool. Like the the Taycan, it has this bassy rumble to it. I, I guess I know why it's there and I'm not yeah. going to complain about it, but I turn it off inside the car. I don't, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't need artificial sound i don't i don't need to pretend like there's something you know i'm i'm acutely aware of where that sound comes from and that it doesn't come from the electric motors and so i just turn that shit off yeah so do you uh do you think that the ev is going to be stuck in that sort of position of you know being a, a relatively generic experience or do you think someone's gonna figure out a way to bring the fizz to uh to to the ev well so far all they've figured out is how to make them very very fast um which i think has diminishing returns uh because there's only so fast that that people can go i mean it's not like we've all of a sudden become better drivers uh it's not like we've all of a sudden become you know we've all of a sudden developed the reflexes of formula one you know, I've, I've, I just had an interview with the Lotus guys who are about to sell a 2000 horsepower EV called the Avaya. Um, and, and, and they, they seem pretty aware of the fact that what they're doing is ridiculous. Um, but it's also, it's bragging rights. And I don't know if you can put the cork back in that bottle. Um, uh, you know, I think, uh, of the ones I've driven, the Porsches are the most exciting, but we've, I've, but, but the, 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 the Taycan Turbo S is also so fast that I made myself sick driving it. Um, it's, it's, it's a, produces a, a deeply, deeply unpleasant sensation when you start to go really fast. And, um, although I did lease an electric car in order to, to run around LA and sit in traffic, um, my, I can't envision a time in which my choice of enthusiast car would, would be an EV or a hybrid. I, 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 I don't see that happening. Uh, I don't know ever maybe in my lifetime. Uh, and it doesn't mean I don't respect what these guys are, are doing and trying to do. Um, but you know, when it comes to, um, 
recreational driving, whether that's on a, on a racetrack or um, on a, a grand tour, as it were, a, a road trip um, in a fun car to a fun destination. You know, I, uh, I really prefer um, manual transmissions and it doesn't mean I like, uh, you know, I want only cars from like the seventies, you know, I have, I have two, two classics from the eighties, one from the nineties and, and one from the two thousands. And, and I have a brand new car coming um, that I've ordered that is, that is a manual transmission, naturally aspirated car. Um, you know, uh, and I, and I do believe in environmentalism and I do believe in, um, you know, in shifting, uh, to, towards a little bit more sustainability, um, especially in the, the commercial sector and in, in shipping and aviation and stuff like that and doing what we can to be more sustainable. But, um, you know, I'm also a driver and, uh, I'm also a, an enthusiast and I, I want, I want to engage with the machine. Um, you know, that's why I, why I got into cars was, was because, um, I, I found it incredibly rewarding to engage with the machine. Um, so, so, so my choices of, of personal recreational vehicles will, as far as I can see, be, be powered by gasoline and have three pedals. We're, uh, we're shit out of luck in the Northeast because all the nineties, you know, manual gearbox cars are rusting away, uh, you know, one after another. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, I understand. We'll, we'll have to find other other solutions. Hey man, you know we got we have a ton more questions. I know you're you're limited. Were there any? Sorry, uh, you want to blast through a, a few? Uh, yeah, unless we could do a, a part B to this. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of. Uh, if you have time, you know, in a couple of weeks, we could always just hold off and you know. Well, I've got seven minutes now. If you want to get All through, right. if you want to lightning round it, and then we could we could figure out another time. All sure. Right. So you mentioned the top 10. I, I just have a question for you. Give me the top five cars you've ever driven that are your favorite. Uh, McLaren F1, uh, Koenigsegg Agera R, uh, Porsche 911 R, uh, the uh, Porsche uh, GT4 by Demand Motorsport, which is a four and a half liter engine, 550 horsepower is nuts. Uh, Hennessy Venom GT was pretty scary uh and then my lamborghini countach nice yeah. johnny grew up with that uh, lamborghini yeah. as a poster in his bedroom oh, yeah. <laughs> as, as did i as did i and so having the real thing is uh is quite the experience i was hoping the fox body that you sold uh was one of your top five but i guess didn't make it no neat car um neat car but it, it unfortunately does not crack the top uh the top five but i was able to donate a lot of money to uh an animal shelter that that saves injured kittens uh when we sold it and so it was for a good cause that's awesome danny's the one trying to save all the fox bodies in the northeast from the rust uh well they're i mean look they're they're very quickly becoming quite collectible uh if you've got the right one um, you know, mine was very cool and I certainly enjoyed it while I had it. Um, but I got to a point with it where I had all this chassis work done and it, um, it, you know, it all of a sudden, when you have that much chassis and that much grip, you know, having 240 wheel horsepower is not all that exciting anymore. And so in order to get to that next level, it would have meant a completely new engine. And so, you know, it was, it was either I, 
I sell this thing at a nice profit and do some good and move on to the next project or, you know, dump $30,000 into it to, to put a, you know, a voodoo engine or something into it. And, and I didn't want another two years of projecting, you know? Yeah. 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 Last, last one for me. Uh, Is there anything that you could see technology doing for a vehicle that's not currently already being done that you think would improve your experience in a vehicle? Well, uh, and I could, I could get on a rant here, but, but I think we should abandon the idea of autonomous cars. Um, uh, and certainly partial autonomy in terms of L3 and L4, uh, and instead focus on parallel autonomy, where you have humans doing what they do best, which is physically doing using their hand-eye coordination to control the vehicle, and not using their <laughs> easily distracted focus to babysit a machine that is doing that. Instead, if we developed parallel autonomy, where the computers were really good at overseeing the human driver and we had uh, an uncrashable car as opposed to a car where you take a nap and it drives you to work. I think people are so enamored by the idea of the party trick of press a button, enter a destination and the car just drives you there. They don't realize how ridiculous a proposition that is because cars, roads, and our entire world was built to support human drivers. And so without a complete re-engineering of that world, without a complete removal of all human-powered, human-driven vehicles off the road where you had cars that were all interconnected with an internet, um, you know, I think it, I think the 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 idea that we're gonna have some kind of truly privately owned autonomous vehicle in the next 10 or 15 years is completely ridiculous because humans and computers reason in such different ways that there's very few reason ways for them to effectively talk to each other. Computers can't be programmed to navigate a totally open world operational domain. It, it just doesn't work. And so instead, if we had humans just drive the cars because humans are actually very good drivers. Statistically, they can be distracted, but human, a human and a car well-trained is a very safe thing. Um, and a computer driving a car in a world where other humans are driving cars is incredibly dangerous. Um, and there's, a, there's so many holes in that operational design domain. I mean, there's just, it's so full of holes that if instead we focused on safety like the autonomous people pretend to do and aren't doing, some of them. If we focus on safety and worked on a parallel system of autonomy where the computer babysits the human driver and the human doesn't babysit the computer driver, I think we could in a much more streamlined fashion develop an uncrashable car uh, or at least a car that was incredibly resistant to being crashed. Um, and we could save lives that way. And so uh, I also think we could develop systems of at-home retesting, at-home recertification, driver monitoring systems uh, that could lead to fewer road fatalities, that could lead to better driving and safer driving. But we don't actually want that. We want a party trick. Uh, we want to take a nap while being taken to work. 
We want to browse our phone while going down the highway. You know, we're, we're lazy and we're distracted and we don't actually want safety. We just want that crutch of saying it's about safety so that we can have the party trick. And I think that's sad, but that's where we're at. And people are suckers. Well said. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you uh, taking time out to uh, be oh, on the okay, Perception man. Podcast. Thank you for um, having me. Yeah. You know, if we're ever out on the West Coast, uh, we'd love to hook up. But I'd love to come by to check out the Hot Wheels storage facility because yep. every time I, I see your pictures, I'm, I'm drawn to it like it's my Hot Wheels collection. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. West Side Collector Car Storage in Playa Vista. Um, we are open uh, seven days a week. Where, uh, where can everybody follow you and all that fun stuff? Just uh, Everything is the smoking tire. Instagram, uh, Facebook, YouTube, podcast. It's all the smoking tire. So pretty, pretty straightforward. And uh, Westside Collector Car Storage also has an Instagram or just uh, WCCS.com. Great. Well, again, we appreciate it and uh, hope we get to meet in person someday. All right. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. You. Yep. you guys have a good rest of your afternoon. Come see you me too. when you're in L.A., all right? And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.